Good morning, River West Church. I want to officially welcome you all to what the Atlantic is calling our pandemic summer. A phrase that I never thought I would ever hear so strange. And we're all still in this strange, disorienting experience together. But I can't tell you how much joy it gives me this morning to know that we're all gathering together in homes across the city, many of you with loved ones, with family members and friends gathering in home churches, others gathering virtually online, wherever you are. I'm so glad you tuned in. I want to encourage you, go ahead, press pause, grab a Bible, grab a cup of coffee, and turn to Daniel chapter 4. For the past seven weeks, we've been in a series that we've entitled Faithful Living for fragile times. And in the midst of a cultural moment that feels like a raging furnace, we're opening the book of Daniel to glean wisdom and understand what it looks like to be a faithful witness for Christ in the midst of these challenging, trying times. When it comes to faithful witnesses in Christian history, not many Christian leaders will ever be able to hold a candle to the late evangelist, Billy Graham. Last week, I came across a Christianity Today article that Graham had written reflecting back on the crusades that he led and organized during the civil rights movement. From the time that Graham became a Christ follower, he always said that he could not understand segregation in the church. So in the wake of the civil rights movement in 1952, he felt compelled in his spirit to take what was considered at the time a radical stand for Christ. He was scheduled to hold a crusade in Jackson, Mississippi, and the seating had been arranged to accommodate a segregated audience. Ropes had been erected to keep blacks and whites apart. But when Graham arrived at the meeting, he personally went around and pulled the ropes down and refused to let them be put back up. Many Christian leaders in that moment said that Billy Graham made a lot of enemies in pulling down those ropes. But for him, it didn't matter. It was a matter of Christian conviction in conscience. So in 1993, some 40 years later, Billy Graham wrote this message on the sin of racism that could not be more pertinent and even prophetic for the cultural moment that we find ourselves in today. He wrote these words. Listen to this. Racial and ethnic hostility is the foremost social problem facing our world today. We must not underestimate the devastating effects of racism on our world. Daily headlines chronicle its grim toll. Divided nations and families devastating wars and human suffering on an unimaginable scale. 
a constant downward spiral of poverty and hopelessness, children cruelly broken in body and warped in heart and mind. The list is long, but for the sensitive Christian, it is even longer. Whole peoples poisoned by violence and racial hatred and closed to the gospel as a result. Indifference and resistance by Christians who are intolerant towards those of other backgrounds, ignorant of their spiritual and physical needs. Racism in the world and in the church is one of the greatest barriers to world evangelization. Racism is a sin precisely because it keeps us from obeying God's command to love our neighbor and because it has its root in pride and arrogance. Brothers and sisters, today I wholeheartedly believe that God wants to do a healing work, a reconciling work, a gospel-renewing work in our heart, in our city, in our nation. But this healing work, this reconciling work must begin where it did for the Reverend Billy Graham, in a humble heart. You see, although Billy Graham was a gifted preacher who filled stadiums and advised sitting presidents, the reason that God used him so powerful to bring hope and reconciliation to millions was not because of his abilities. It was because of his humility. Last week in Daniel chapter 3, Pastor Adam shared something that has stuck with me all week. He said, sometimes God can accomplish more by bringing us through the furnace than from keeping us from it in the first place. River West, today, I want to suggest, impress upon you to consider that one of the primary things that God wants to do through this trying season that has disrupted life as we know it right now in our own hearts is to set us free from pride and arrogance and shape us into a humble people that can be a healing witness to our hurting world. So today, as we continue, continue our series in Daniel, this course in humility will actually come to us from the most unlikely teacher in the Old Testament, a prideful pagan king named Nebuchadnezzar. So if you have your Bible, open up now to Daniel chapter 4, and we'll start at verse 1. King Nebuchadnezzar, to all the peoples, nations, and languages that dwell in all the earth, peace be multiplied to you. It has seemed good to me to show the signs and wonders that the Most High God has done for me, how great are his signs, how mighty his wonders. His kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, and his dominion endures from generation to generation. I, 
Nebuchadnezzar was at ease in my house and prospering in my palace. I saw a dream that made me afraid. As I lay in bed, the fancies and the visions of my head alarmed me. So I made a decree that all wise men of Babylon should be brought before me that they might make known to me the interpretation of the dream. Then the magicians, the enchanters, the Chaldeans, and astrologers came in, and I told them the dream. But they did not make known to me its interpretation. At last, Daniel came in before me, who was named Belteshazzar, for the name of my God, and in whom is the spirit of the holy gods. And I told him the dream, saying, O Belteshazzar, chief of magicians, because I know that the spirit of the holy gods is in you and that no mystery is too difficult for you. Tell me the visions of my dream that I saw and their interpretation. The visions of my head as I lay in bed were these. I saw and behold a tree in the midst of the earth and its height was great. The tree grew and became strong and its top reached to heaven and it was visible to the end of the whole earth. Its leaves were beautiful and its fruit abundant, and in it was food for all. The beast of the field found shade under it, and the birds of the heavens lived in its branches, and all flesh was fed from it. I saw in the visions of my head as I lay in bed, and behold, a watcher, a holy one, came down from heaven. He proclaimed aloud, and said thus, chop down the tree and lop off its branches. Strip off its leaves and scatter its fruit. Let the beasts flee from under it and the birds from its branches, but leave the stump of its roots in the ground. Bound with a band of iron and bronze amid the tender grass of the field, let him be wet with the dew of heaven. Let his portion be with the beasts and the grass of the earth. Let his mind be changed from a man's, and let a beast's mind be given to him. And let seven periods of time pass over him. The sentence is by the decree of the watchers, and the decision by the word of the holy ones, to the end that the living may know that the Most High rules over the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will and sets over it the lowliest of men." This dream I, King Nebuchadnezzar, saw, and you, O Belteshazzar, tell me the interpretation, because all the wise men in my kingdom are not able to make known to me the interpretation, but you are able, for the spirit of the holy gods is in you. Now, one of the fascinating things you may not have picked up in that passage is that it actually was not written by Daniel. The words that we just read together were not actually penned by the prophet Daniel. They were penned by King Nebuchadnezzar himself. It's essentially an autobiography of his life that is broken up into four scenes throughout this chapter. If you're taking notes... The four scenes I've entitled this. The first scene is deception. Scene number two is the dream. 
Scene number three is the humiliation. And scene number four is humility. Now today, what I want to do with the remainder of our time online here together, as you get ready to discuss this passage and break it up in homes, is I want to camp on the first two scenes, Nebuchadnezzar's deception and his dream. And then next week, Pastor Eric will follow up and unpack the two remaining scenes, Nebuchadnezzar's humiliation and humility. So let's start with the scene where everything begins to unravel for King Nebuchadnezzar, the deception in this passage, the lie. At first glance, everything actually by appearances seems to be going really well for Nebuchadnezzar in chapter four. Verse four tells us that he's at ease and prospering in his palace when these words were captured. By all worldly accounts, Nebuchadnezzar has it made. He's achieved unparalleled success and has no peers. At the time that Nebuchadnezzar ruled in the 6th century BC, he was the most prosperous, powerful king on the face of the earth. Were he alive today, he would actually dominate the Forbes list of billionaires. The royal palace that's referred to in this passage was absolutely immense, featuring walls that were 387 feet high and 87 feet thick, so massive that four chariots side by side would often race around the perimeter of the palace walls. Just outside the walls of the palace, the city of Babylon rose out of the desert plains like a Manhattan skyline and was almost too opulent for us to imagine. It boasted temples and terraces and a hanging garden that was considered one of the seven wonders of the world in that day. And every single brick that built up this incredible, glorious-looking empire of Babylon had King Nebuchadnezzar's name stamped on it. But as we'll see, all of this is about to come crashing down. Every brick in the kingdom, like a tree that's chopped down with an axe, all because King Nebuchadnezzar's heart was deceived by the oldest and most insidious of sins, pride. The author C.S. Lewis defines pride this way. Listen to what he says. He says, according to Christian teachers, the essential vice, the utmost evil is pride. Unchastity, anger, greed, drunkenness, and all that are mere flea bites in comparison. It was through pride that the devil became the devil. Pride leads to every other vice. It is the complete anti-God state of mind. Now, what's so poignant and powerful about Lewis's insight about pride is he's saying that underneath every sin that we commit, 
We harbor in our hearts from lust and greed to racism and bigotry and hatred. There lurks what he calls this anti-God state of mind that is pride. Sadly, this anti-God attitude, this pride is the very thing that led God's people into captivity in Babylon. And as we'll see, in the end, pride would lead to King Nebuchadnezzar's demise as well. Because as the book of Proverbs warns us, pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. And friends, here's the whole point of the first scene in this story. Pride deceives us into thinking and believing that we can run our lives better than God. Deep down, we all buy into the same lie that Satan has peddled from the very beginning in the Garden of Eden, that you and I can find happiness by being our own gods, by calling the shots and deciding what's good and wise and right for ourselves. And what's sobering about Nebuchadnezzar's story is that this deception takes root in his heart after he's witnessed God's power on display in the fiery furnace and even issued a decree saying that every citizen in Babylon should worship the God of Israel. Look at the, at the tail end of chapter 3, how the chapter ends in verses 28 and 29. We're just backing up and reading, refreshing our memory of these two verses. Look, in verse 28, it says, Nebuchadnezzar answered and said, Blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who has sent his angel and delivered his servants who trusted in him and set aside the king's command and yielded up their bodies rather than serve and worship any god except their own god. Therefore, I make a decree, and listen to this, any people, nation, or language that speaks anything against the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego shall be torn limb from limb and their houses laid in ruins, for there is no other God who is able to rescue in this way. Now, did you notice in that passage, Nebuchadnezzar, how he referred to God? He didn't actually refer to God as his God. He referred to the Lord as the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, or their God, not his God. You see, underneath all of his religious veneer, his power, his wealth, his prosperity, Nebuchadnezzar's heart, is just as proud and arrogant and haughty as ever. And while it's easy to see the pride in an arrogant, oppressive king like Nebuchadnezzar, the truth is pride creeps in and lurks in the recesses of every single one of our hearts. 
In fact, what's fascinating about pride is it's so blatantly obvious when we see this vice and others, but there's no other sin that actually blinds us to its presence and its influence in our own hearts as we swell up in conceit, being duped and deceived the whole time. But thankfully, friends, God loves us far too much to allow pride to deceive us and to lead us blindly down a path of personal and societal destruction. So God does something in this story that should shock us and and stop us in our tracks and rattle us as the readers. He extends grace to a sinful, arrogant, unrepentant pagan king by warning him through another dream. And to be honest, this doesn't make sense. King Nebuchadnezzar doesn't deserve to actually be pursued, but we're going to see God is going to send Daniel into his life again and another dream. And to be candid, while it's certainly a strange dream, the meaning of this dream is actually quite easy to discern when Nebuchadnezzar shares it. For the sake of time, I'm going to summarize the portion of the dream that we read earlier. Basically, the dream is about this enormous tree that represents Babylon, and all the nations of the earth come under this tree, and then the tree gets chopped down by a giant angel that wields an axe and stripped of all of its leaves and its fruit. But then the imagery of this dream, without warning, switches from a tree to that of a man. And this man in the dream was exiled to live outdoors with the wild animals where he'd eat grass and his hair would become matted and he wouldn't bathe unless it rained, which now that I come to think of it actually reminds me of my boy's quarantine hygiene approach during this whole pandemic. Not not bathing, their hair is matted. I love them, but they've seriously gone feral in quarantine in the Kaufman house. (laughs) Now, all jokes aside, this dream does not cause Daniel to smile. It actually freaks him out because he actually knows that this dream doesn't bode well for the king of Babylon. And so Nebuchadnezzar begs Daniel to interpret this dream from him. And finally, Daniel gives in. And in verse 19, we get the interpretation of this dream. Follow along in verse 19. It says, then Daniel, whose name was Belteshazzar, was dismayed for a while, and his thoughts alarmed him. The king answered and said, Belteshazzar, let not the dream or its interpretation alarm you. Belteshazzar answered and said, My lord, may the dream be for those who hate you and its interpretation for your enemies. The tree you saw, which grew and became strong, so that its top reached to the heavens, And it was visible to the end of the whole earth, whose leaves were beautiful and its fruit abundant, and in which the food was for all, under which the beasts of the field found shade. 
and in whose branches the birds of the heavens lived. It is you, O king, who have grown and become strong. Your greatness has grown to the reaches of heaven and your dominion to the ends of the earth. And because the king saw a watcher, a holy one, coming down from heaven and saying, chop down the tree and destroy it, but leave the stump of its root in the earth, bound with a band of iron and bronze and the tender grass of the field. And let him be wet with the dew of heaven and let his portion be with the beasts of the field till seven periods of time pass over him. This is the interpretation. O king, it is the decree of the Most High, which has come upon my Lord and King, that you shall be driven from among men and your dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field. You shall be made to eat grass like an ox, and you shall be wet with the dew of heaven, and seven periods of time shall pass over you, till you know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will. And as it was commanded to leave the stump of its roots of the tree, your kingdom shall be confirmed for you from the time that you know that heaven rules." Therefore, O king, o king, let my counsel be acceptable to you. Break off your sins by practicing righteousness and your iniquities by showing mercy to the oppressed, that there may be, perhaps be a lengthening of your prosperity. As I was reflecting on the passage that I just read this week, I honestly couldn't wrap my heart around why God would go all this way to warn a prideful, arrogant, unrepentant king like Nebuchadnezzar. Not just once, but over and over and over again. Through visions and dreams, but also through Daniel's faithful witness and his humble presence in the king's life. You see, folks, the scriptures tell us that God opposes the proud and gives grace to the humble. But I want to let you know, our God also extends grace to the proud and arrogant. Often by opposing our proud ways, and by exposing our sins in order to make us humble. That's why Daniel doesn't just condemn the king's pride and his oppressive actions, but actually calls him to repentance in verse 27. Look at this call to repentance. This is a clear call. In verse 27, it says, Therefore, O king, let my counsel be acceptable to you. Break off your sins by practicing righteousness and your iniquities by showing mercy to the oppressed. Now, although commentators are are split over whether King Nebuchadnezzar ever truly humbled himself, repented of his sins, and came to a saving knowledge of the Most High God. I want you to notice how this once prideful, arrogant king addressed the Lord at the beginning of this passage. Pay attention. When King Nebuchadnezzar wrote this decree, 
how he refers to the Lord in this passage. In verses 1 to 3, read again. It says, King Nebuchadnezzar, to all peoples, nations, languages that dwell in the earth, peace be multiplied to you. It has seemed good to me to show you the signs and wonders that the Most High God has done for me. How great are his signs, how mighty his wonders. His kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, and his dominion endures from generation to generation. River West Friends, here is the gospel truth that is at the tender heart of this story. God loves you and I so much that he cannot allow us in love to be deceived and destroyed by pride. So he often in grace, in love, in kindness, uses hard Things, humbling experiences to cut us down to size, to right-size us, not because he's an angry, arrogant king like King Nebuchadnezzar was, but because he's a humble, healing king. This vision of our humble, healing king is, is captured so beautifully In Philippians chapter 2, I just want to read this passage slowly. I want you to quiet your heart. Take in the picture of King Jesus, our humble king, that Paul puts before us in this passage. Paul writes, so if there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love and and being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourself, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross." Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. Folks, our most high God, sent his son Jesus to become a man. He emptied himself and took on the form of the lowliest of men while he walked in the earth. He humbled himself and hung on a brutal tree that was designed to inflict suffering 
publicly shame and humiliate. Also, proud, stiff-necked sinners like Nebuchadnezzar, but also like you and I could have a Savior. This is the gospel, the good news of our salvation, and it is truly the only message that can bring hope and healing to our hurting world. And with this story, just moved me this week when I read about this. I did not know that toward the end of Billy Graham's life, in his final days, he actually, one day, when he knew that his time was short, he gathered his closest friends, his family members. He called Michael W. Smith and Max Lucado, leaders that had had an influence in his life, over to his home to discuss the final details of his funeral. At the time, the famous evangelist was 94 years old. Although his mind was still sharp, his body was beginning to give out. As he gathered people around, he struggled to find the energy to convey his final wishes for his funeral. And this is what he said. He gathered them in, and he made this request. Can you not mention my name at my funeral? Just mention the name of Jesus. Folks, what humility. From a leader that, that advised sitting presidents and, and filled stadiums, impacted millions, to say, when it's all said and done, I don't want the world to remember Billy Graham. I want them to remember Jesus. May it be so with us. May we be so clothed in humility that at the end of all time, the world does not remember Pastor Christopher, Pastor Adam, Pastor Mary Ann, River West Church, or any other name but just the name of Jesus, the only name that can save. Friends, if you're listening today and you haven't made the decision to make Jesus your Lord and Savior today, he opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. And I think we've all been humbled. That's you. I'm, I'm just going to lead us in a prayer this morning. I invite you to just bow your heart before the Lord. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, thank you, Lord, so much for the way that you, you never stop coming to us in, in grace. Lord, there has been so many proud moments, Lord, during this pandemic where you've exposed areas in my life where I have relied on my own wisdom, my own abilities. When in those moments, Lord, where I felt inept, don't know what to do, Lord, thank you, you meet us in grace. Today, if you've just been brought to the end of yourself and the end of your rope and you need a Savior, just agree with these words. Just say, Lord Jesus, I need you. I need you to, to help me, to, to save me to guide me. I'm tired of trying to run my own life. 
surrender my heart to you. If you prayed that prayer, then you are a Christian. God's spirit lives inside of you. You're a new creation. This morning to, to celebrate this grace that saves us, we're going to receive communion as a community. Feel free as you're worshiping together in, in homes to just press pause right here, grab communion elements that you've picked up or you have in your home, and I'm going to lead us in communion prayer today. On the night that Jesus was betrayed, he took bread in front of his disciples, knowing that he would be humbled and humiliated on the cross. He took a piece of bread. And after he had given thanks, he said, this is my body broken for you. Whenever you gather, do this in remembrance of me. Let's remember Christ's humility and his broken body and receive the bread together today. In the same way, Christ, he took a cup, a simple, humble cup, and as he lifted it up in front of his disciples, he said, this cup, it represents the blood of a new covenant, a covenant of grace. And as often as you gather, do this in remembrance of me. Let's receive the cup and remember Christ's forgiveness. River West, I love you all. I miss you all. Let's turn our hearts to the Lord who's worthy of our praise and worship our great Savior this morning.